Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Okay, welcome everybody. Welcome back to the Dharma Doors. I'm MC Owens. Um, so tonight is a continuation of last weekend and the weekend before that. But as always, have no fear because I'm going to sort of review a little bit, kind of bring us back up to speed about uh, what we're talking about, what the sutra is about tonight. It's a very rich sutra that way, and we could really spend night after night after night just on like the first paragraph kind of a thing. If it's your first time here, the sutra we're doing is called The Demonstration of the Inconceivable State of Buddhahood, but the actual title of it is the Sugana Deva Sutra. Sugana is a god of the realm of desire. And so this whole sutra is sort of for, in a way, the benefit of this god, kind of, or at least that's his name is the title of the sutra. What this sutra is about, though, as this other title, The Demonstration of the Inconceivable State of Buddhahood, that is exactly what this sutra is about. <laughs> Buddhahood. What's Buddhahood? All right. Buddhahood. Um, and so tonight, to, to go a little further in the sutra, to uh, talk about some new ideas, uh, I'm going to focus, in terms of reviewing where we're at, I'm going to focus on clarifying the difference between what's called a shravaka in this uh, Mahayana Buddhist tradition. Uh, this would also be a thera, an elder, monk, ascetic, renunciant. This group of folks who's in this sutra represented by the elder Shibuti, Shibuti the wise, um, all of these sort of represent this early school of Buddhism, this early movement, the monastic movement, the ascetic movement, the renunciatory movement, um, and as I've said, night after night after night, Buddhism is a very old, long tradition, 2,500 years old, and it's grown, it's changed a lot. And so it gets hard to teach Buddhism in the singular. <laughs> um, and so tonight what we're doing is sort of highlighting a difference between old school Buddhism, so-called Theravada, so-called Hinayana, the little vehicle, and then this uh, Mahayana, the great vehicle, which is focused on the role of the bodhisattva. And so tonight we're actually focusing on the, what's a bodhisattva? Like that's sort of the, the, the take home or the theme tonight is what's a bodhisattva all about, right? Um, these bodhisattvas, by the way, they're a little trickier to grasp Elders, that's easy. Presbyteers, right? We know about presbyteers and elders in religion and religions that are based on hierarchies of seniority and elderness. We know about that. So we know about what a monk is or a renunciant in that sense. But what's a bodhisattva? You know, bodhisattvas are wild. They're kind of these quasi-angelic, saint-like beings it, they kind of start to sound a little bit like Catholic saints that way, where there's the bodhisattva of wisdom, a bodhisattva of compassion, a bodhisattva of endurance, a bodhisattva of this. Basically, any Buddhist virtue or quality will have a bodhisattva that represents it. 
So in that sense, they're kind of like these, again, symbolic angel-like beings. But there's also a little bit of a sense that these were historical figures, that these bodhisattvas were, like Manjushri, may have actually been a Kashmirian prince, actually, that ruled a small little uh, nation or a little country in, in Kashmir. Maybe, maybe not. The important part about that, though, is to understand that the bodhisattva, while in Buddhist art, is represented like this on my uh, whiteboard here, is represented kind of in this Buddha-esque fashion, right? I don't think we have any other bodhisattva images. But the bodhisattva has a, a place in the imagery, but the bodhisattva has a, a kind of a more important place in the practice of Buddhism, which is... There's one practice of Buddhism, which is this pretty austere practice of renunciation. Shaved head. Basically, you give up your wardrobe for just one set of robes that you'll wear the rest of your life. Life poverty. That's the renunciatory path. The Bodhisattva is this other path. It's another way of being Buddhist. It kind of represents the new school Mahayana way of being Buddhist. And what many people will say for clarity's sake is that these monks, these renunciants, nuns as well, they're sort of going for their goal is a state called uh, arahat, a worthy one. And I've said before, what arahat or a worthy one means is worthy of offerings. Meaning if you give some, this person somebody, you're going to get good, good punya, good karma in return. They're worthy. It's understood that there's other people that if you give them something, you just lost something. <laughs> that there's no karmic reciprocity, right? So that this is an old idea that's at play. And these shravakas, the reason why they're called voice hearers, shravakas, is they, they heard what the Buddha said. The Buddha told them about, well, I erased it from last week, but the Buddha told them about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, the truth of suffering, and the, the release of suffering, the cessation of suffering. These guys and gals and women heard it, and they were like, yeah, we're in, Buddha. And if they achieve the highest state of a shravaka or of a monk or a nun, they reach arhat ship. They're released from suffering. They're certainly kind of enlightened beings in a sense, but they're not a Buddha. A bodhisattva, a, a sattva, a being of Bodhi. Bodhi is awakening, enlightenment. So these enlightenment beings, they're not going for arhatship. They're going for Buddhahood. They're bound for being a Buddha, like our Maitreya. He's next in line to be the next Buddha. Maitreya, uh, Manjushri, well, Manjushri's going to get tricky in the sutra in a second. But just for now, the idea is, is that bodhisattvas are Buddhas in training. And so a sutra like this, in which right from the beginning, thus have I heard the Buddha was in Anatha Pandika's park, in the Jetta Grove, a mango, a mango grove. And in that park, there was Manjushri, Shibuti, Saguna. And the Buddha asked Manjushri, hey, Manjushri, tell everybody what Buddhahood is. That's how this sutra starts. For everybody's benefit, for Saguna, the god of realm of desire, tell everybody what Buddhahood is. 
All right, and then this is where we've spent the last two weeks, which is a, a back and forth between the Buddha and Manjushri about the nature of Buddhahood. Not being a arhat, shravaka, and releasing suffering, and four noble truths, not that. We're talking about Buddhahood, all right? And so to get us back up to speed where we're at, a great way to kind of articulate the difference between a bodhisattva and a arhat is these two ideas, the three marks of existence versus the three doors of liberation. The three doors of liberation, signlessness, emptiness, and wishlessness, they occurred in our sutra. In fact, the answer to the question of what is Buddhahood, when Manjushri turns it around and says to the Buddha, now you tell me what Buddhahood is, right? Because Manjushri's answer was that the state of Buddhahood is not a state of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. It's not a state of anything to do with this conditioned world. It's completely other than the conditioned world, right? And so <laughs> this, uh, um, so this distinction between these two is going to be highlighted in these two ideas. And we've encountered these three doors of liberation, as they're called, but I didn't actually really explain them too well. And so I'm going to use the, this idea and contrast it with this sort of Theravada Shravaka idea in order to kind of bring us again back to this idea of wow, this Buddhahood that we're talking about tonight, right? Everybody, everybody yep, yep. These doors are from the Mahayana tradition? Well, that's a great question. Let's, let's hold off on those three things for a, a moment, all right? Just hold off on the three doors and all that. Let's start with these three marks of existence. Let's just lay some Dharma foundation here, okay? So one of the original teachings of the Buddha to his original group of followers was something known as the three marks of existence, the three characteristics of existence, the three lakshana, just to put that word out there. It's the three characteristics of all phenomena. This is an early Buddhist idea, and it's an idea, again, that he taught to renunciants, to monks and nuns, and said, bhikshus, bhikshunis, monks, nuns. A follower of the Buddha should view everything in this world, including themselves and everything going on in them, as all having everything, having the same three qualities, the same three characteristics or marks. All things are impermanent, all things are without a self, and all things are a source of suffering. Now, I'm going to clarify or, or at least go a little deeper on each of these. But again, these are three qualities that everything is, is kind of, that you're sort of in terms of the mind training of this early school of Buddhism, it was to try to see everything through these three characteristics or marks. Everything is not being permanent, impermanent. Nothing lasts. Nothing. Anicca. This is like a fundamental dharma of the Buddha. And something that I like to point out about this dharma, this truth of the Buddha, is that whether it's the laws of thermodynamics or whatever, there's nothing about this truth that contradicts our science and our way of seeing the world. You talk to any scientist, they'll tell you everything is impermanent, decaying. That's the nature of the world. 
the, the Dharma, the teaching of this, of all of this, is that we're sometimes ignorant, right? Ignorant meaning we're ignoring this kind of basic truth. And in our ignoring, in our ignorance of this fundamental truth, we get upset. Things that we wanted to last, they don't, and we get upset. That's the clinging, the suffering, based on, again, ignorance, not living in accordance with truth. And again, not some high, like, mystical truth. Some truth that you already know and understand. Like, like fundamentally, that things don't last, that everything is in a state of decay. So that was the Buddha's first, um, not his first, but one of his first major teachings was all things are impermanent, and that's a mark of existence. Bhikshus, bhikshunis, regard all things as impermanent. Regard all things as anatta or anatman, without a self or no self. This is complicated. We're not going to go dive into this one at all. I just want to make very clear that in the earliest forms of Buddhism, we're talking 500 BC, 400 BC. What this meant, the no self idea, the Buddha also very scientifically minded in in our modern sense of science, understood all things atomistically, meaning all things are made up of smaller things. And then those smaller things are made up of smaller things. And so it gets very difficult to grasp the one thing when that one thing is made up of other things. So you take like the one book. But isn't the one book made up of a bunch of pages and a cover and ink and all of that? So this individual singular book is also kind of not true, (laughs) But like this one where we ignore the, that and sometimes think things are permanent or we think that if we wish really hard, things will stay permanent <laughs> when that's not true, right? Well, equally, the Buddha is sort of saying with this anatman is that this is something you kind of already know and have witnessed, but there's a tendency of the mind that likes to put a name and a label and then make a singularity of things. And this is sort of saying, no, there's no actual singularities in that sense. All things are kind of accumulations or aggregations of smaller things. Now, this is going to be a little tricky, but in the earliest schools of Buddhism where this was really taught, the idea was that there was no like personal self in that sense because the self broke down into these smaller dharmas or aggregates of form, sensation, perception, conditioning, and consciousness, right? But in the early schools of Buddhism, they did sort of believe in these fundamental dharmas, kind of like atomic particles, but they're a little more metaphysical than that. But they were these indestructible, final, final results of physics. So this no-self was like, the self that you think that has a name and you think is singular, it actually breaks down to these smaller things. This will be contrasted with complete emptiness in a moment. So that's why I'm planting this seed that this really early no self was more about things always breaking down to smaller things. And then finally, 
in addition to seeing everything as impermanent and everything as being constructed of smaller things and therefore no individual self in that way, everything is being unsatisfactory. Now, this could be as extreme as everything is a source of suffering. Dukkha, this is the big thing in early Buddhism, or suffering. It's a big thing in Buddhism, all of it. And the idea of the three marks of existence is to view everything as ultimately being unsatisfactory. In the sense of we feel whatever, some kind of psychic or emotional lacking, and we think, this will do it. This will do it. This will make me happy. <laughs> and the Buddha is actually saying that all things that are other, which is actually everything in that sense, everything is, will not be, lead, not lead to the great pleasure. Because ultimately, there's no actual book and it's impermanent. And so if my great happiness, my joy... <laughs> Oh, is being derived from the book, so I think, then the moment the book disappears and is impermanent, oh, there's yeah. the, the suffering because of the impermanence, or, right, or I'm so happy because of my book, and then somebody's like, takes that one page out and shows me about the, oh, it's made up of a bunch of other things, and now I'm like, wait a minute, is my book that, or is this my book? Ah, the suffering again. All right, so you kind of see how these work together. Again, the early Buddhist program was about reprogramming the mind that was convinced happiness lay out there. Convinced of the self and other things. And of course, convinced of a certain permanence. And this permanence factored mainly into ideas of the afterlife. The sense of, well, this is going to keep going, though, right? Forever, right? <laughs> That's that, all of that. Okay. Again, these are the three marks or characteristics or lakshana of existence that the early school of Buddhism said, forget the lakshana, forget the qualities and characteristics that you think of this world. Everything has three similar characteristics. Equally unsatisfactory, equally unindividuated or no self and equally impermanent. Everybody good on the early program? Okay. Manjushri talking to the Buddha, the Buddha says in, in Manjushri when he says, all right, I understand that Buddhahood is not a state of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. It's not a state of that. What is it? And the Buddha responds that the state of Buddhahood is, in a sense, unconditioned. And he says that the state of Buddhahood is signless, empty, and wishless. And these, so the, the, in the sutra, Manjushri says to the Buddha, what's Buddhahood? And the Buddha says, well, it's unconditioned, signless, empty, and wishless. And then they move on from there. That idea becomes, and it appears in many sutras, not just this one, that idea becomes known as the three doors of liberation. And in a sense, is a Mahayana uh, response to the marks of existence. And what I want you to know, though, is that the idea of the animita or alakshana, the lakshana-lessness, <laughs> signlessness, 
you will find it in the earliest of earliest Buddhist writings. The idea of shunyata, emptiness, you will find in the earliest of earliest Buddha writings. And the, of course, the idea of wishlessness, of non-desirability, you will find in the earliest, earliest of Buddha sutras. However, I want to point out something about, in particular, the relationship of signlessness and emptiness really quickly. We read a sutra a number of months ago called the Kula Shunyata Sutta, the small sutra on emptiness, and in which an elder, a monk, asked the Buddha. And this is a Theravada Sutta, one of the earliest. And in that sutta, Ananda, an elder, asked the Buddha, Buddha, I've heard you talk about how you sometimes go to the shunyata vihara. And a vihara is a, well, a vihara was originally a forest, but it became like a vihara, well, actually, a, a vihara eventually come, becomes a monastery. But originally, before there was the building of the monastery, there was just a bunch of monks in a clearing in a forest. And that clearing in a forest where the monks gathered was a vihara. So it was kind of the early monastery. But in this interesting sutra, the Buddha says that he abides in the vihara of emptiness. And Ananda's like, did I, in the sutra, Ananda says, did I hear you right? And the Buddha's like, yeah. And he walks him through this emptiness meditation in which they arrive at the signless. If you, if you re, have read Pali Suttas or you're familiar with the Theravada and you're curious about the relationship between Mahayana and Theravada, I want you to know that a sutra like that is interesting because Ananda, he's trained in the jhanas, the four jhanas. He's trained in samadhi. He is, for all intents and purposes, an arhat, a freed being and all of that. He's at the end of the road of that path. And in that sutra, he's like, I, I'm just curious, Buddha. Like, my training's done. I'm just curious. I've heard that you go to the emptiness vihara. Meaning that the Buddha's kind of doing his, something else that the monks aren't doing. The monks are going to the jhanas, the formless samadhis, state of neither perception nor non-perception, nirodha, all of that stuff. But in this early, early Theravada Sutta about emptiness and signlessness, it's kind of this just for the Buddha. Well, let's just say that bodhisattvas are definitely into signless and emptiness. And so, again, what you can see is that historically, the the bodhisattvas were like, "What, what about this little Shunyata Sutra? What about this one? What about all these other ideas that the Buddha just sort of left little a breadcrumb trail of ideas about? Signlessness, wishlessness, emptiness. Like they're all strewn throughout the Pali Canon. But they're not necessarily part of the, the traditional marga, the traditional path, eightfold path of Buddhism. But they become it. And so eventually in Mahayana, and I will explain why the Mahayana eventually is like, eh, let's not, eh. How about the three doors of liberation? The three doorways that lead to Buddhahood. Signlessness, emptiness, and wishlessness. 
So very quickly, the idea of signlessness is this, and, and keep an eye on the clock because we got, we got places to go. So signlessness is easy. All of this is so easy. <laughs> I'm going to use, um, it's supporting a bunch of stuff here, but on the table, there's a little pillow, okay? It's a little square pillow. By my estimation, it's a little square green pillow. Everybody see the little square green, green pillow, right? So I'm going to start talking about it. That's it, It's signs. It's marks. It's qualities or characteristics, otherwise known as lakshana, right? The lakshana, which is how I would know what that is. Like, why don't I think it's a cat? Well, it's not moving, right? So check that one off, right? It's not furry. Check that one off, right? It doesn't have ears, eyes, nose, all of that. Check all of those lakshana off, right? That's how I know it's not that. So how I know what it is is based on its lakshana, right? Oh, square, this and that, and that, right? So I'm going to take one lakshana, and I want you just to be fully aware that this goes for all of them. <laughs> but I don't have time to do them all, so we're going to choose one. I want to choose the easiest one for time's sake, which is its color, the green pillow. So we all think that there's a green pillow on the little table, right? The idea is, is that, again, scientifically we know that that color green is sort of tricky because if somebody were colorblind, meaning they had a different set of rods and cones in their eye, they would actually see a different color pillow. Everybody with me on this, right? Nobody denying that idea, right? That subtle little idea right there, which is that it's, it's because of this eyeball and its unique makeup that that thing appears green. And what that means is that the green quality, the greenness is not possessed or owned or held by that object. Its greenness is a dependently originated phenomena that happens when whatever phenomena that is comes into contact with this particular eye and there arises in the in-between the green. Now, do I, are my eyes green? No, so the greenness isn't in my eye because I kind of have brown eyes or whatever. And I've just said the greenness isn't in the pillow. It's a dependently originated phenomena that occurs in the in-between. The most important thing about this is, is that the greenness is not possessed or held by that object. It is, in fact, um, uh, a, a kind of a, a little illusion that I believe it is held and possessed by that object, right? Now, again, we could do this to all of them. What might make it a pillow? That it's squishy, right? But what if I had really, really, really arthritic hands, right? And I had like a, a, a soft marshmallow that just is like so soft. And I asked somebody to tell me, which is the soft thing? They would definitely not say that. They would say this, this other, you know, marshmallow thing. So the softness is a dependently originated phenomenon that's not held by that object, right? The color, 
we eventually could get to the shape, ideas of the shape, that square is a dependently originated idea based on rectangles, circles, triangles, and other geometric shapes. So the idea is that all of these lakshana, all of these qualities, are not held and owned by any object I'm seeing. They're all dependently originated phenomena that I ignorantly think is held by the object. And again, what I, I, just to show you how this is working on a Buddhist level, imagine that through conditioning, years of positive reinforcement, right? Anytime people give, show me gr little green things or green objects, I just get so excited. It makes my day, right? Woo, look, there's another one, right? <laughs> right? Now imagine somebody goes in and rewires my rods and cones. And now I'm like, wow, I was so happy before because there was all this green phenomena. And now there's all red phenomena. And I can't find a green thing anywhere. <laughs> there's not a green thing in the universe anymore. You see what I'm saying? About this relationship between the qualities that are out there that then we want, and we're ignoring the fact that we're the generator of those qualities. But we, again, ignorantly think they're out there to be grasped and held, owned, bartered with, and traded, right? So the teaching of signlessness is that nothing, anything, actually has any lakshana. Possessed or held by it. That all lakshana are, in a sense, thrown or projected onto these things. Shape, number, color. Forget about aesthetics, beauty, ugliness, use value, function, all of that. In fact, function is going to get towards our, the last one there. But let's stay on the signlessness. Any questions about signs, marks, characteristics, what they're talking about, and what they're talking about in terms of signlessness? Yes, sir. Could something like... Um uh, greed or uh, like a quality like that, a, a feeling in a human or a sentient being feeling be a sign. Exactly. And the idea would be, that's a great example. So the idea would be um, oh, all kinds of things. So the guy, somebody walks in and whatever, they look, they look ravenous and they see the, the box of money, grab it, run out. I go, oh, look, look at the greedy person. Lakshana, projected onto the person. I didn't know that they had an emergency, family was dying, they needed money quick, whatever it was. I projected onto Lakshana, rav rav grabbing money ravenously, right? Must be full of greed. No, that greed was all a mentally, I made that up based on my reading of the Lakshana. And that Lakshana of greed was not held or possessed by that person. They weren't greedy. So it's all this big lakshana party in terms of, and what I mean by that is, is that this stuff's really fundamental because I, I do this one often. If I asked you to go get me a chair, how would you know what to go get me? You would probably go get something that had the qualities, characteristics, or marks of a chair. Something I could sit on, maybe something with a back, although that's questionable whether chairs all have backs. But So what we know this world is, how we know what things are, is all based on lakshana. So this 
subtle dharmic teaching of signlessness that nothing actually has any of those characters, characteristics or qualities, that it's all kind of dependently originated mind phenomena, that's, that's not easy to, to grok because we rely on the Lakshana to make sense of this world. But this is pointing to what I've said now, however many times, the dependently originated nature of this world. Questions on silenceness? Uh, does that also extend to, for example, our judgments on others? The only way we judge is by Lakshana. Again, uh, if we're talking aesthetics, judgment is all on that. On that. goes on and on and on. So now if we understand Lakshana as not being held by any object but being dependently originated, then we can get to the underlying nature of all of these objects. Surprise! The underlying nature of all of these objects is that they don't exist in that way. They're empty. They're dependently originated phenomena, right? Questions about emptiness? <laughs> yes, sir. Well, actually, I was actually going to go back to sign. Please do. And this is a tiny piece of what you were talking about, so don't go here if it's not relevant. Appreciate but, that. But, like, on color um, and signlessness around that, how does the fact that, yeah, the way I see it, very likely a little different than the way you see it based on, you know, our physical eyes and or I'm colorblind or whatever. Uh, but still we've we've agreed on the convention. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does that sort of fit into this, I guess? It's all convention. It is all a matter of convenience. Because it all in the text, and I can't read the part because I'm not going to read a new. I'm not going to read all part. But the text even says at a certain point, "Whoa, that all of this only exists in language." It says that. It says all of this is in language, and language is the convention. Yeah, it is the convention, and so Buddhism is right on top of that. And in fact. The, the message of this sutra that I want to get to is this idea that the five skandhas, the three kleshas, the three poisons, all of this, that this world of the conditioned is the unconditioned. This is the, the big surprise of this sutra. And the, how that is so is because of language. As crazy as that sounds, it's the only way this is happening. Me up here talking. And language is, of course, the written word as well. So language is how this happens. Even though language is totally conditioned, totally suffering, da-da-da-da-da, yet it is the, the door. It's the doorway in that sense. Do, do they mean communication? or? Well, I mean, it's just what our, what our friend here just said about these things, right, whether it's language or money or whatever, right, it's just a convenience, it's just a convention. But like money, we can misconstrue the convention. We can start hoarding the convention, right? We can become ignorant about the nature of the convention of money and start reifying the money. Same thing with language and words in that way. All right. 
The signs are not held by the object. They dependently arise. And in fact, all phenomena are dependently originated. And therefore, unto themselves individually, they are empty. Again, unto themselves individually, empty. Does that, is that kind of like taking dependent origination and turning it inside out, what you just said? Like, uh, unto themselves... Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? Because it sounds kind of like that. Because it says, well, actually, it's kind of like blowing my mind right now. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It'll pass. Previously, during that Pua Sutra, you said you, we shall, should not say that the pillow is empty. Very good. And then you said, I'm not going to go into that right now. Yes. <laughs> so, okay. yeah. so I'm hearing this and I'm thinking epistemologically I understand emptiness mm-hmm. but I don't live emptiness exactly and that is so to the point of the bodhisattva path which is this idea that all of this is counterintuitive totally counterintuitive so the idea is that it requires mind training whether you're trying to view the world this way or through the doors of liberation, it requires a retraining of the mind to kind of keep reminding oneself of, oh, that quality is dependently originated. And because of that, what I think is a object is a, what would be called a pranyapti. It is a, it's just an idea. There's this great saying in Buddhism, they talk about, um, uh, rabbit horns and turtle fur coats. Rabbit horns and turtle fur coats. Turtles don't have fur. Rabbits don't have horns. But I can say rabbit horn and you can you know, maybe go try to find me a rabbit horn, right? (laughs) So just because we have a word for something and can imagine something doesn't make it real. It makes it a convention, (laughs) a word that we can share, and all that. And what ultimately this is saying is that everything is a pranyati. Everything's a rabbit horn. Book, pillow, sentient being, whatever it is. They are all words that we share. And then there, it's like rabbit horn, rabbit horn, rabbit horn, rabbit horn. Great, rabbit horn. <laughs> no, no rabbit horn. Just because we both said it and agreed doesn't make it any more real. But that's what's ultimately going on here. When it's like, book? Yeah, book. Book, 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 book. Read it, read it. But. Uh, Do you think it just lightens things up a bit to realize that? I think it's incredibly liberating. I think the, the, the opposite of this is totally shackling, fettering, heavy. I, that's my experience. All right, we got to go. We got to go on. We got to go on. Finally, if everything is ultimately empty, so yes, not even the pillow's empty, right? Everything was without sign, empty. Therefore, everything is wishless, right? This is a tricky one, the wishless. And in fact, I should have said this from the beginning, all three doors of liberation, these are kind of really tricky because they are always functioning both Subject and object, meaning all the phenomena I'm seeing are signless, empty, and wishless, 
And ultimately the subject, not just the object, but the subject, signless, empty, no self, avilokiteshvara, no self, empty, empty. So not just breaks down two smaller things, but actually empty. And then ultimately wishless, again, twofold, meaning that on the subjective part, I should have no want or desire for these things that are actually ultimately empty and without marks. Are you with me on that? And the view of the world of all phenomena is that all things are kind of pointless. Meaning that something having a, a purpose, a direction, it's going towards a purpose or a goal, that's also projected on, from me onto the thing. And if I could really pull back my deluded mind and all the projection, I would see that everything is just kind of chilling there and not bound for anything with no purpose, no underlying, no greater purpose or anything. All purpose, all meaning, all significance in that sense is projected. Everybody with me? Because we've got, got places to go. Okay, so the idea here is, of course, is that the... The Bodhisattva is practicing these three doors of liberation. And ultimately, the Mahayana, it doesn't reject the three marks of existence, but it firmly places the three marks of existence in this deeply conditioned samsara realm. And what I mean by that is that the, the enlightened nature of Buddhahood understands that there is nothing to be impermanent, there is nothing to break down to smaller things, and even those smaller things are not. And even this idea of judging, quote-unquote, the world as a source of suffering, the Mahayana twist is that this is the source of suffering. The stuff in the world that I want is not a source of suffering. The mind is a source of suffering. And how this plays out historically is that because every phenomenon, everything in the world is ultimately unsatisfactory and a source of suffering, the best move then is, right? This is the best move then. No hair. Don't eat much. Just try to like mitigate this relationship with all this suffering stuff. And then what happens with the suffering, especially when the monks, the males, take over the whole organization, is that they believe that the female is a big source of suffering. It's always her fault. Always her fault. Yeah, they, they make them stand in the back, right? So that we're not tempted when we're praying to God. Like multiple religions, women have to be in the back so that the men are not tempted. Why can't the men control themselves, right? Why? It's a very interesting thing. So the idea is, is that from a Theravada point of view, yeah, all of this is problematic, but ultimately kind of constantly throwing that on the world is not really helping realize that this is the problem. Not the women, not my genitals, not anything like that, just the mind and its attachment. And so this wishlessness kind of overtakes this idea of suffering in that sense. That the Bodhisattva is more interested in controlling his own desire than getting away from that which has been deemed as source of suffering. Everybody with...
Shravaka Bodhisattva. Now you really want to know what a Bodhisattva is, right? You, you're like, well, how do I do that, right? <laughs> is that what you want to know? <laughs> Great. So, after this back and forth between the Buddha and Manjushri about the nature of Buddhahood, that Buddhahood is totally unconditioned, signless, empty, wishless, that's the nature of Buddhahood, this thing happens. It's the nature of the back and forth, which is like, Manjushri is like, wait a minute. <laughs> if, if this Buddhahood is like, has no signs, no qualities or characteristics, therefore unknowable by our previously defined definition of Lakshana, which is Lakshana is how I know what something is. So how would I know what Buddhahood is if it has no signs, no marks? This is what Manjushri is asking the Buddha, by the way. If, if, if it's empty and wishless, how do I get there? All of these ideas... That if, if I understand what you're saying right about Buddhahood and emptiness, if I understand that right, then, well, then Shravakas are Bodhisattvas and Bodhisattvas are. How can there be any distinctions between Shravakas and Pratekya Buddhas? And, uh, and I haven't mentioned the Pratekya Buddhas tonight, but how could there be any distinctions among these beings? Right? And so then, Shubhuti pipes up. So this goes on back and forth for a while, and then Shibuti pipes up and starts asking Manjushri questions. Like, whoa, Manjushri, I don't know about this. This is crazy. Like, <laughs> no, so, you know, he's like kind of representing the old school. And so now, the new new. So then, after all of that, the elder Shibuti asked Manjushri, so... Do you not explain the dharma of the Shravaka vehicle to the Shravakas? Like, to some monks? Don't you teach monk stuff? Right? And, Manjushri answers, I follow the dharma of all vehicles. And so this language of vehicles is a yana. We're talking about the Hinayana of the monks. The Pratekya Buddha Yana, the solitary Buddha one, these are just enlightened people that are like, oh, I got it, see ya, and they're off to nirvana. That's the idea of a Pratekya Buddha, that this dharma of unconditioned liberation is available to everybody, and there's a lot of people that figure it out, and they're like, oh, then I'm out of here. Not necessarily a renunciatory way, but just, I'm going to nirvana. And so that's called a Pratekya Buddha vehicle. And so... The Shibuti wants to know, like, well, which are you? Are you a little vehicle guy, a protective vehicle? What, what are you? And he says, I follow the Dharma of all vehicles. Shibuti asks, I don't get it. Are you a Shravaka? Are you a protective Buddha? Or are you a supremely enlightened one? Manjushri answered, I am a Shravaka. But my understanding does not come through the speech of others. All right? And so I already told you the word shavaka means voice hearer. The idea is they heard what the Buddha said and they're followers. Right? And so he says, I am a shavaka, but my understanding does not come through the speech of others. I am a Pratekya Buddha, but I do not abandon great compassion 
or fear anything. The main point of that is that they don't abandon great compassion. So that's the little, a little jab at the Pratekya Buddha is that that's, it's great that you're enlightened, but what about the rest of us? Right? And I am a worthy one, a supremely enlightened one, but I still do not give up my original vows. So that's a wild one, and this happens in a few sutras where Manjushri ultimately says, yeah, I am a Buddha too. <laughs> and then it starts to become like, whoa, then wait, which is better, to be a Buddha or to be a Bodhisattva? All right? Now, of course, if you're trying to be better, then you've missed it already. But... <laughs> okay, everybody with me so, uh, so far? And by original vow, this is a basic requirement of Amitabha Buddha, Medicine Buddha. All Buddhas are, are described by these vows that they make, essentially to save all sentient beings. Okay. So then Shibuti asks, after hearing that, Shibuti asks, why are you a Shravaka? Because I cause sentient beings to hear the Dharma that they have not heard before. Why are you a Pratekya Buddha? Because I thoroughly, thoroughly comprehend dependent, the dependent origination of all dharmas. And that is the criteria or the, what makes a Pratekya Buddha a Pratekya Buddha is that they understand dependent origination. And so this is, because I thoroughly comprehend the dependent origination of all dharmas, which I spent 45 minutes trying to, so that it would not sound weird. <laughs> and he said that. <clears throat> Why are you a worthy one, a supremely enlightened Buddha? Because I realize that all things are equal in the Dharma Dattu, in the sphere or realm of the Dharma. All things are equal. That also shouldn't sound too weird after everything we just talked about, right? Dharma Dattu is a crazy idea that I, I'm not going to even do. I'm just hold on, because I want to get somewhere. Shibuti asks, Sri, in what stage do you really abide? Right? It's a great question. So he's like, okay, yeah, fun, fun and games are over, but where are you really? And this language of abide is this idea of like, where do you, where do, you do it? Where do you do this practice? How do you achieve it? Right? And then Sri, in what stage do you really abide? Sri said, I abide in every stage. Shibuti asks, could it be that you also abide in the stage of ordinary people? Manjushri said, I definitely abide in the stage of ordinary people. Shibuti asked, with what esoteric implication do you say this? I say so because all dharmas are equal by nature. Shibuti asked, if all dharmas are equal by nature, where are such dharmas as the stage of a Shravaka, the stage of a Pratekya Buddha, Bodhisattva, and Buddhas? Where are these stages established? Manjushri answered, as an illustration, consider the empty space in the ten directions. People speak of the eastern space, Southern space, Western space, Northern space, the four intermediate spaces, the space above, the space below, and so forth. 
Such distinctions are spoken of, although the empty space itself is devoid of such distinctions. In like manner, virtuous ones, the various stages are established in the ultimate emptiness of all things, although the emptiness itself is devoid of all distinctions. That's heavy duty. That's heavy duty, kids. Right? That we speak of the space in the ten directions, yet to space... (laughs) Right? This is Einstein stuff. My east is your west. My down is your up. Right? Up, down, space, all that. Yet we still make distinctions between this way and that way. That way is not that way. So Shravaka, Pratekya Buddha, all of these are distinctions within space. Please. It's a little tricky because it seems like he's talking about the stages of Shravaka, Pratekya Buddha, Bodhisattva Buddha, and, and, normal human and normal human beings. But it's also understood, and it, it's one of those things that you just know about. The Bodhisattva path itself has these 10 stages that get spoken about a lot, and that's also sort of clearly being talked about, which is this idea of progression, right? This is the, okay, kids, this is it. Shibuti asks, have you entered the realization of sainthood and been forever separated from samsara? It's a great question, right? Manjushri said, I have entered it and emerged from it. (laughs) Shibuti asks, why did you emerge from it after you entered it? Right? And Manjushri answered, Virtuous ones, you should know that this is a manifestation of the wisdom and ingenuity of a bodhisattva. He truly enters the realization of sainthood and becomes separated from samsara. Then, as a method to save sentient beings, he emerges from that realization, Shibuti. Suppose an expert archer plans to harm a bitter enemy, but mistaking his beloved son in the wilderness for that enemy, he shoots an arrow at him. The son shouts, I've done nothing wrong. Why do you wish to harm me? At once, the archer, who is swift-footed, dashes towards his son and catches the arrow before it does any harm. A bodhisattva is like this. In order to train and subdue Shravakas and Pratekya Buddhas, he attains nirvana. However, he emerges from it and does not fall into the stages of the Shravakas and Pratekya Buddhas. This is why his stage is called the Buddha stage. The Bumis? The Buddha stage. The Bumis are what I referenced in terms of the ten stages of that, of which the eleventh stage is traditionally the Buddha stage. But this is sort of saying something... Is that why bodhisattvas like Avalokiteshvara are usually referred as 10th Bhumi Bodhisattva? Because they supposedly re-emerge? Also, if you've seen the 11-headed Avalokiteshvara, mm-hmm. those are the 11 stages of which the 11th head is a Buddha. So those are the progression towards enlightenment of the 10 stages, the 10 Bhumis. Yeah. This, by the way, this is the classic definition of the Bodhisattva. 
right? The one that goes to nirvana but comes back to save all sentient beings. This is the classic definition that most people give. Oh, bodhisattvas are the ones that get right up to nirvana, but then they wait till everybody, or in this one, they actually go in, come out, right? What's that? But the Buddha did this. He, he, he was ready, he was done, and he stayed to teach that the dust, yep. there's but a speck of dust on the eye of one person, that was enough for him to stay. So he this is the same thing. He entered it, understood liberation, achieved liberation, and rather than leaving, he stayed until he left. But he was left, <laughs> but he was never here because he was always gone. He was, he was in both places. He, the Bodhisattvas exist as it both exists in, in all realms. Exactly. So there's something happening here, sort of two ways, though, like, you know, Buddhism is sort of often spoken of as a tradition of wisdom and compassion, and that you need both of these, and that if it's just wisdom, it's just philosophy, and if it's just compassion without wisdom, it can ultimately, or not ultimately, but it has the potential to be harmful, they say. Like, if you don't know how to apply it, you can kind of smother people in that way, right? So wisdom and compassion. The compassion is this message of the, the, with the archer or whatever, but it, this message of like, I got liberated, but then I was like, oh, but what about everybody else? So out of compassion, I've come back. So that's the bodhisattva virtue of compassion. But again, the first 45 minutes of this class, the bodhisattva also understands that it, nobody's getting enlightened until we're all getting enlightened. There really isn't such a thing as are as individual enlightenment. There can't be, by all the definitions I just laid out, vis-a-vis -vis regarding dependent origination, that even the very subject is a dependently originated construct. And so true, real liberation will only happen when everybody's liberated. That's it. There's nowhere to go in that sense. So the liberation that is being spoken of, that the Bodhisattva, <clears throat> goes to and comes out of, is this a type of liberation that cannot be achieved in a person's, like, a living liberation? It's like, or is, is this... Oh, no, saying? quite the opposite in that sense, because within the old school, where they believed in the, the breakdown of reality to these dharmas, greed, hatred, and delusion were dharmas. Like, there's 108 dharmas... And some of them are great. They just happen to be a constituent element of our reality, right? And the idea was is that in the old school, these three were like a build-up a build and a cruel from lifetime after lifetime after lifetime of ignorance, right? And so it's going to take lifetime after lifetime of polishing that proverbial mirror until the kleshas are gone. With this, though... They're already gone, A, it's just ignorance, and so this is where you get into your Zen instant enlightenment, sudden enlightenment, that potential. In this system, it takes lifetimes, kalpas upon kalpas upon kalpas. This system, it's an ever-present truth reality, not even possibility, because it's, it's already done in that sense. So yeah, very distinct in that sense, right? Where this is like, 
uh, readily available. <laughs> well, yes? Um, this may not be related, if it's not, just say that. Um, does the idea of Bodhisattvas, like, becoming enlightened and then coming back because, like, their enlightenment shows that the work is obviously not get done kind of thing, um, is that related at all to, like, ideas of Tibetan Tulkus who, like, would potentially super awesome enlightened people, but, like, the classic example would be, like, the Dalai Lama, right, or, like, other Tibetan Lamas who, like, keep coming back because they still have work to do? So there's a lot going on with that. Yes, it's definitely a, a, a speaking to this coming back for everybody. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's a complicated idea. And it, it's definitely about the Bodhisattva path and about Bodhisattvas coming back. Yeah, and actually what that speaks a little more to is these upper Bodhisattvas. Actually, at some point, if you get into the... Um, it's not mythology, it's actually called Buddhology. You can go get a master's degree in Buddhology and understand how all this works. But within the, the Buddhology of this, it speaks to how these, at certain point, these bodhisattvas become essentially disembodied beings in that way, able to zip in and out of existences. And ultimately, ultimately the idea of a lot of the Tibetan tradition is how most of us are so freaked out and scarred and tra traumatized by the rebirthing experience that we wake up and spend basically the next 50 years trying to figure out what just happened. <laughs> Upper level bodhisattvas, though, who actually train in the bardos, these gaps between consciousness, they are said to be able to not get freaked out by it, they train themselves. Again, we don't have the Tibetan imagery, but the reason why that Tibetan imagery is sometimes so horrific, demon-based, is they actually say that that's all what the afterlife looks like, and so get used to it, so that when you die, you'll be like, "Hey, Mara, hey, what's up?" And you won't be freaked out, and you can actually control your rebirth. That's what a tulku is—a controlled rebirth. <laughs> and that's it. I just wanted to double check. So, with the Bodhisattva idea going into nirvana and coming out, are we supposed to understand that as like a sequential thing? Or is it more, these are different directions in the space, but there isn't actually a big separation between the two states? I don't, I mean, it's so tricky. And it's so tricky because, you know, these sutras, especially these Mahayana sutras, are so poetic. You know, they're dealing with such slight poetry that when it says... Manjushri's like, oh yeah, I've been in Nirvana, and I've, I've been back. It's hard to, to judge, like, are they talking about like a, a meditative experience that he's had, or is it poetic? Like, like hey, don't you get it? This is, this is Nirvana. Kind of, like, it's, and it's not one or the other. It's always operating on these multiple levels. And also I wanted to say this too, there's a little more I want to try to get to, and we have time, but I wanted you, this demonstration of the inconceivable state of Buddhahood, the idea here is, and I often speak of these sutras as trilectical arguments, so not dialectical, but trilectical, where you have the, the, the monk or the shavaka, the, the bodhisattva, and the Buddha having this three-part conversation in which they're bouncing these ideas off each other, and there's a way in which the demonstration of Buddhahood is in the in-between of all of that. And it's not that the enlightened Buddha stuff came from this guy and the ignorant, unenlightened stuff came from this guy. It's that the enlightenment actually is in this discourse. Mm 
moving around, right? So, and one, yep. Okay, so I have like a hundred questions, but I'm gonna just ask one. So, um, if everything is already done, enlightened, everything is in the palm of our hand, liberation, where does right effort, or like, where do I apply my right effort, my right effort in the midst of all of that? Everything is already perfect the way it is. Um, I, I always only have one uh, story for this one, right? <laughs> so my favorite way of explaining this subtle move is in, it comes from the awakening of faith. It's a, not a sutra. It's like a commentary on sutras. And in it, there's this beautiful story about a, a, a guy who's lost in the woods. It's a, a, a new moon night, so it's pitch black. He has no lamp, no compass, no star. And so he doesn't know north, south, east, or west, and so he's totally lost. The story says the moment that man doesn't care where he's going, he's no longer lost. Thank you. Right? Where is that story from? It's from the awakening of faith. It's actually, that text is called the awakening of faith in the Mahayana. And it's actually a commentary by Asvagosha, I believe. It's, or at least attributed to a guy named Asvagosha, in which he does what I'm trying to do here, which is get people psyched about this Mahayana thing. And that is a beautiful way of saying this idea, which is that nirvana and enlightenment is not gaining anything. It's actually losing something, just like that guy in the woods lost his desire to be anywhere. And in the moment he loses it, he's no longer lost. It's not that he, oh, I got a compass, now I'm not lost anymore. No, the being lost was dependent upon desire. And so the answer to your question is, is that it's always about desire in that way. And that it's actually a, a letting go that reveals our enlightened nature already in that sense. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That's what I'm here to do. Now. <laughs> yeah. So I only want to ask you this now because otherwise I may never ask or never have the chance. I know how that goes. You're so excellent at explaining sutras that I got to take this chance. <laughs> Especially since you were talking about the bardos. And that's interesting because, yes, I've been studying... Uh, the topic of Bartos with my main teacher for the last couple of years at least. And when you were met talking about how these Kerukas, 100 Kerukas and 100 Bodhisattvas uh, present themselves upon the process of dying, before that, uh, what it manifests are the five uh, Buddha wisdoms, deep wisdoms. And before that, and this is where I'm going, before that, uh, what manifests itself is Rikpa, this uh, luminosity, great expanse, which is often referred, especially when it's talked about it in terms of knowledge or wisdom, as omniscient, mm -hmm. as uh, Sarvanyana, know it all. And here's what I want to ask you as Sutra teacher. When is this concept of omniscience uh, talked about in the... Sutras, either mm. uh, Hinayanas or Mahayanas, because mm -hmm. every time I come to your classes, I'm more surprised that more terms that I was associating more with uh, Tantrism or Vajrayana were already present in the uh, yep. Hinayana texts. Yep. So, hmm. do you know anything about when did that concept start to pop in? Sarvanyana. 
Maybe, oh wow, I don't know. They're almost there in the oh, unconditioned uh, absolutely. qualities. Absolutely. Especially when understanding the infinite uh, mm -hmm. dependent origination, that's absolutely. where you need Sarvanyana. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't really know. It's a good question, and I think it does have a lot to do with what I've been talking about tonight, <clears throat> which is that this early Buddhism, the Theravada as it's called today, so focused as it is on the renunciatory path, and like I said with the little Shunyata Sutra about the Buddha, what the Buddha was doing was sort of this, not the topic of the suttas. The topic of the suttas was like what the monks are doing. Sarvanyana is, is the realm of Buddhahood, absolutely. And so I'm trying to think, like, if I ever seen the discussion of the mind of the Buddha, of that fully enlightened mind, have I ever seen it in the Theravada stuff? I don't think I have. I mean, there's certainly way early Mahayana stuff from B BC easily, 100, 200 BC, all the early Pranya, um, you know, the Pranya Paramita Sutras, of which the Pranya Paramita Sutras are a whole genre of a bunch of sutras. They're probably the earliest Mahayana Sutras. Um, they're all about it. They're all about that idea of um, this idea of just jnana versus vijnana. Consciousness, this is vijnana. And this V is a, this prefix sort of means divided, split, uh, dualistic jnana, subject-object jnana. But they talk about the Buddha and Bodhisattvas having just jnana, just knowledge, not vijnana, not discriminatory, conditioned, based, passing through these filters and all that, but original, you know, in fact, I wanted to say that, or not doing super great on getting through this suture, but this distinction between the conditioned and unconditioned in Buddhism, I want to just spend one moment on this idea that, you know, they're talking about Buddhahood, they're talking about all of this intense Dharma as being sort of on that side of unconditioned, and that suffering, samsara, the whole mess is about the conditioned. And I've, done, I've used a number of different examples to talk about conditioned and unconditioned. I've talked about air conditioning, all kinds of stuff. I want to give you one more to go on, just so you can kind of, again, just kind of try to feel or touch this, this Buddhahood. So I've, I've used this example in the past about me having an idea, such as like, ooh, pizza. Like, I'm going to go get some pizza, Right? That idea, that brilliant idea of mine, is entirely dependent upon and conditioned by the advertisements I saw. I walked by the pizza place, I saw it. I didn't have that idea all unto myself. It was conditioned, right? I didn't think, you know what, let's get some wheat, and then we'll ground it up. And, and I'm thinking round. Yes, round. And to me, yes, I didn't come up with the whole thing and then decide I need to go find me some of that. No, I had a con totally conditioned thought. A thought I've had so many times before, right? So the idea about the unconditioned is, is that think about something that has no precedent. 
Think about something that is not reliant upon anything else. Think about an idea that doesn't come from anywhere else but you. A totally original idea, right? What a, what a thought. What an idea, right? A totally original idea that you can't trace back where you got it from. And I mean not even like, I mean like, you know, you had an original idea, but it was because you thought of that other bad idea. And then it was like, like, oh, you know, that was a bad way of doing that. I've got a better idea. Well, that better idea was conditioned on that bad idea. Tell me one thing that's not conditional, right? And of course, the meditation of all of this is to go looking for that, to attempt to go looking for the unconditioned. I dare you. <laughs> Right? That's my big upaya. I dare you to go find the unconditioned, right? But does everybody kind of feel what I'm talking about here with that unconditioned? It's a wild idea. Now, ideas are conditioned, but of course, all phenomena is conditioned as well in that sense. All things rely on other things to be what they are. So now try to, try to think a being that is unconditioned. Try to think a thought that is unconditioned. Again, it's a meditation. It's not a... A pop quiz in that way, right? All right. A few more? And one more line? Okay. Because... So, great. Shibuti asks the great question. After Manjushri says this whole thing about all the stages, that he's in all the stages, but like empty space, there's these distinctions and all of that, Right? Shibuti asked, well then, how can a bodhisattva attain this stage of Buddhahood? How can a bodhisattva attain this stage of Buddhahood? Manjushri answered, if bodhisattvas dwell in all stages and yet dwell nowhere, they can attain this stage. And yet dwell nowhere. If they can discourse on all the stages, but do not abide in the lower stages, they can attain this stage of Buddhahood. If they practice with the purpose of ending the afflictions of all sentient beings, but realize there is no ending in the Dharmadhatu, if they abide in the unconditioned, yet perform conditioned actions, if they remain in samsara, but regard it as a garden and do not seek nirvana before all their vows are fulfilled, then they can certainly attain this stage. If they realize egolessness, yet bring sentient beings to maturity, they can attain this stage. If they achieve the Buddha wisdom, yet do not generate anger or hatred towards those who lack wisdom, they can attain this stage. If they practice by turning the Dharma wheel for those who seek the Dharma, but make no distinctions among things, they can attain this stage. Furthermore, if bodhisattvas vanquish demons, yet assume the appearance of the four demons, they can attain this stage. Shibuti said, Manjushri, such practices of a bodhisattva are very difficult for any worldly being to believe. 
Manjushri said, So it is. So it is as you say. Bodhisattvas perform deeds in the mundane world, but transcend worldly dharmas. And then there's the great plant that I can't get to because it would be the big can. So that's going to be next. That'll be next week. And next week will probably be my last sutra or my last night on the sutra since we only have a few more pages. Questions, ideas, comments, epiphanies. No. I think the kind of the message of this sutra, and it speaks to the bodhisattva path, and there was a reference to it in what I just read, that it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's tricky, and I'm, I'm going to try to put it in like simple words, but For the moment, let's just say, you know, that we really, you know, understood all of this unconditioned, signless, empty business, right? There's a, a certain way in which, because of the equality of all things, that, and because, especially because of the emptiness of all things and all of that, there's this, not a temptation, not at all, but there is this potential for then like a kind of nihilism, apathy, so what? And so when it's talking about this idea of like, you know, what is north, south, east, and west to space, right? And yet we make those distinctions. And if, you, if I wanted to meet you over there and you started walking that way, it's going to be a problem, right? And so and going back to our con- convenience, convention, all of that, right? So we need these things. But more importantly than that, and I never really know how to say this, but... You know, in Buddhism, the suffering, the real experience of suffering is always real and true. It's actually the only thing, in a sense, that's real and true because it's being experienced. And you can say it's, oh, but it's empty. But it does, that doesn't matter. You can say, no self. Yeah, no, no, no. So the suffering is always real. Whether this is a dream or whether whatever, whatever, the suffering is real. And so what all of this is sort of about is that the, the What's a bodhisattva? A bodhisattva is somebody that realizes all this, but doesn't abandon all the people that don't realize it, in that sense. Realizes that suffering is real. Two beings that think they have selves and all of that. So the bodhisattva is this interesting, again, where wisdom and compassion really dovetail into a being, in that sense, right? Yep. What is the back one of the sutras... uh... Uh, the, the Buddha who wasn't the Buddha, the Bodhisattva who wasn't the Buddha, Akita, what's his name, the, the guy who would hang out with the prostitutes. Vimalakirti. Vimalakirti, right. All of this culminates in a sutra like Vimalakirti, where that sutra, so this sutra, if you haven't noticed, is a little heavy. <laughs> they dive right in. There's no messing around. Hey, what's Buddhahood? All right, let's go. Woohoo. And it, it goes from zero to 60 real quick, right? They're just like, okay. And so I, I, I'm always trying to like, you know, explain the, the 
the, the practical value of this, right? And so it's difficult with a sutra like this where they go so quick, but all of this then culminates in a sutra like Vimalakirti where it is a story, fun, he's telling jokes, but he embodies all of this. And so rather than a trilectical ar uh, argument or discourse about it, we'll give it to you in story format. And I, and I might as well just end this talk uh, on this idea of upaya, skillful means or expedient means. Another sort of really big hallmark, if you will, of Mahayana Buddhism is this emphasis on upaya, skillful means or expedient means. The skillful means or expedient means is a wild idea in Buddhism. It gets misconstrued a lot, I think. Um, there's a lot of ways to interpret it. But the basic idea is, is that a very good teacher can hear a question. This is just an example of upaya, of which there are many. A good teacher hears a question, knows the student knows why they kind of asked that. And if they can come up with a good answer for that person in that moment that gets that person to be like, oh, I get it. That's an upaya. And the tricky thing about upaya is, is that, so you ask the great question, right? And I give you, I'm, I'm a shotgun with my upaya, right? I just <laughs> like, just fire dharma and just hope something lands, right? I'm not that skilled in my upaya, right? But the idea is you ask that question and you're about the, the nature of all that and I tell you the story about the guy being lost in the woods. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, that, oh, I got it. Upaya, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the trick of upaya is, is that I can't turn around and just use that one on everybody. The upaya was knowing, oh, this will work here, now, for you, here, now. So upaya is this really interesting thing because it, it, it's super like relativistic in that sense. You know, that meaning that it, it could be something totally contradictory that in that moment for that person worked. And again, you take it somewhere else, it's not going to be upayak. Same message, same idea, totally different, right? And so I will say that upaya, you don't hear about it much in this early type of Buddhism. And in many ways, the early Buddhism was a one-size-fits-all, non-upaya form of Buddhism, where it was like, you got, four, you got two legs, <laughs> you got a heart, eyes, you got genitalia, come here, sit down, breathe, we got the method. And it's the same method whether you're a man or a woman or you're this, it doesn't even matter. It's the same prescription for all beings. The Mahayana is this kind of wild kaleidoscope of ideas in that sense and it's a, a lot more um, in my opinion a lot more modern in that Einsteinian relativity way where it's like oh yeah you know what works over here doesn't work over here what's true over here is not true over there you know and so I just wanted to say that about this sort of um, the nature of the early type of Buddhism versus the, uh, the nature of the Mahayana which is very subtle because of this subtle idea of Upaya where it depends in that way. It's really wild. Now, a lot, some people misconstrue this as lying. <laughs> that upaya is like, well, it's okay to tell white lies. If, if, the, if, you're, if your goal... This, I've heard people define upaya this way, that it's okay to tell a white lie if your intention is good. 
There's a story in the, the famous uh, sutra about this idea of upaya is the Lotus Sutra. And the famous story in the Lotus Sutra is a story about the burning house. And this guy takes off and his kids are in his house. And he comes back and his house is on fire. And his kids are inside playing. And they're so immersed in their video game that, that he's like, hey, the house, the house is on fire, guys. And they, they're oblivious to it. They're just playing their video game. And so in the story, the father, the Buddha, he says, oh, yo, I got the new PlayStation 6. Got PlayStation 6 out here. And they go, PlayStation 6? And they run out of the house and thus saved from the burning house. That's the story that's used to explain Upaya. And some people go, oh, so it's okay to tell lies if your intentions are good. I don't think that's what Upaya means. I actually think Upaya, because of the context which it is always delivered, is that it is about teaching and delivering the Dharma and this idea of whether it's a play, a Vimalakirti play, or maybe it's a Buddha. Maybe you need to pray to a Buddha. Or maybe you do need to meditate. Or maybe you should read a sutra. Or maybe selfless service. Do a little bhakti. The idea of the Mahayana is that we got 84,000 different teachings for 84,000 different types of people. Yeah. That. And, and I could have been totally misinformed about this, but I'm curious what your take on it is. Um, is that, you know, because of the time that the Buddha was presenting all of this material and he was speaking of all of this um, Dharma, it was a great time of transition in thought, and that he would sort of choreograph whatever he was going to talk about to whomever he was speaking to. So is that the origin yes. of the idea? That yes. It was his skillful means in, in transmitting the Dharma to whoever he was speaking to. And yes. He would change it based yep. on... In particular for lay people okay. versus monks. Okay. And that there are often sutras in which he says something to the lay people, and then the monks are like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you told us. And he yeah, that's a lay person. Or like Brahmins or yep. other... Mm-hmm. So that's, that is the origin of it, and it's why I'm always so insistent that it's all in the early stuff. It's all in the suttas. It's just not all so blown, like fully developed in that way. And so, and so folks that might want to dismiss certain things because it's not in the original, they're missing it because it's in the original. And then the idea is that these ideas like those just get fully, fully developed to a whole practice called the Bodhisattva. Yes? Do you think that, so I feel like you said last week, the Mahayana as opposed to the Theravada is like, Theravadas are like monks. Like they reduce the possible circumstances of their lives to like this many, no? Like there's three things they do in a day. Whereas the Mahayana is more like practical by lay people. Um, it seems like right action would not matter that much if you were a monk, because you kind of, you're begging and you're meditating and you're like maybe cleaning your house. And mm-hmm. kind of it. So you don't really need to focus on that, but if you're like a lay person, right action becomes hugely complicated very quickly. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that, is that like related? Is that why that happened? Why what happened? Why the focus on um, right action oh. like exploded or became more emphasized because it mattered more? No. You know, right action is always going to be right action in that sense, and... For example, right action is often characterized as nonviolence, as ahimsa. That's sort of a quality of 
right action is ahimsa or nonviolence, that cuts it's from one side of the whiteboard all the way to the other side of the whiteboard is nonviolence. But in regards to the practice and the path and all of that, I will tell you one very interesting thing, and this is actually a good uh, go full circle here on my Dharma talk. Uh, dana. Dana is a paramita, a, a excellence or a perfection in, in Mahayana Buddhism, of where they speak a lot about the paramitas or the excellences. Dana means giving. It's where we get the English word don, donor. Donor comes from dana, same root. What is interesting about dana, and by the way, the bodhisattva, it's number one, dana, giving, giving, giving. What does an arhat mean? Worthy of offerings, worthy of receiving. So dana has nothing. I don't want to say nothing. Donna has very little to do with this path because these people are in the business of getting. Bodhisattvas are in the business of Donna. Very big distinction to make. Again, I I don't want to put this, I never want to put this path down because the renunciatory path is so serious. It's so serious, right? And it's like so... In my opinion, noble, truly. It's like, wow, walking the walk, the serious people, like, yes, worthy of offering. But I also think that this is the way to go, personally, in the 21st century world. I am obviously a Mahayanist in that sense. I'm definitely trying to do the Bodhisattva path in that way because I'm all about nobody's getting saved until we all get saved in that way. I'm all about there's no such thing as real liberation until there's all liberation, right? And I'm also about this as a, as a practice, right? So, okay. On that wonderful note of giving, I'm going to end this part of the, uh, the talk. Um, like I said, I will do one more night on this sutra. I will really try to finish it off next week, and that will be a nice month. You know, again, this we could do all year on this sutra, but uh, so I hope you come back next Sunday. I just want to say thank you so much. The insight, you know, like there's so much compassion and the wisdom in the strips tonight, oh. and the insight that you bring is such a delightful presence. Oh man, thanks, man. I, I mean, I could really say the same. I mean, this is this means a lot to me, and. I I'll say that I look forward to it all week. So this is win-win. So thank you. Thank you. And so hopefully I'll see you next week.